This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Fromovitz, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine here at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And uh, Michael, along with his uh, outstanding uh, group from the Nectar um, Registry, uh, have published the lead article titled Role of Radical Hysterectomy in Patients with Early-Stage High-Grade Neuroendocrine Cervical Carcinoma, a Nectar Study. Welcome, Michael. Good morning, Pedro. Thanks for having me. Well, Michael, once again, congratulations on the great work you're doing, uh, um, not only on rare tumors, but uh, particularly on uh, neuroendocrine cervical carcinoma. Uh, you and, and your group continue to uh, um, uh, certainly deliver a, a high output of uh, scientific publications on this topic, um, and we certainly are very glad um, to have uh, received this uh, manuscript in the journal and thus uh, the lead article. So I wanted to uh, first start by asking you, you know, certainly in the setting of cervical neuroendocrine tumors, even early-stage disease is associated with a very high risk of recurrence. Um, so patients with these tumors undergo very comprehensive and you know, some would consider very aggressive treatment. Um, I was wondering if we can start by having you talk to us about what is the current standard in the management of patients with early stage cervical neuroendocrine tumors? So for these tumors, there's as you said, mentioned, a very aggressive, we almost call it a, a kitchen sink approach where we kind of throw everything at it. Um, if you look at most guidelines, I think everyone agrees that radical surgery, radical hysterectomy, and some sort of lymph node assessment, whether that be full lymphadenectomy or central nodes, is appropriate. And then I think there's, there's wide agreement that everyone needs chemotherapy. Uh, where there's a little bit of, um, of maybe discussion is the role of radiation in these patients. Mm -hmm. um, we feel strongly that you know radiation plays a, a, a role uh, and that it, it reduces the um, amount of pelvic recurrences. And in fact, patients who get radiation after surgery have a reduction in their pelvic recurrences by about 50%. Um, however, compared to those who, who don't get radiation. However, this hasn't, we haven't seen this translate into an overall survival benefit in any of the papers. Uh, including this paper. Uh, and we don't know if that's because the risk of distant recurrence is so high that by reducing pelvic recurrences, you're not reducing survival because patients still recur distantly. Mm -hmm. Or if because these this is such a rare disease, we just don't have the sample size large enough to detect a difference in survival uh, between patients who get radiation after surgery versus patients who don't. But for that matter, you know, our current standard here at MD Anderson is to give these patients radiation after surgery. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're looking specifically now um, in this particular manuscript at the uh, role of radical hysterectomy. And, and I think uh, certainly this draws uh, significant attention because, you know, certainly uh, as you uh, um, conclude from, from this paper, there are some questions as to whether uh, radical hysterectomy may potentially uh, be something that we need to rethink in this patient population. So I wanted to uh, first start by asking you, um, what was the primary reason or the primary objective of this study? So in light of the fact that 
that our standard is for patients to get radiation postoperatively. Um, the, the, the question that we wanted to address was, what is the role of radical surgery in a, a group of patients with cervix cancer who are going to get post-op radiation anyway? Uh, and we wanted to look at what is, what's the role of parametrial involvement, and would patients with parametrial involvement have other indications for radiation anyway? So if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you don't give everyone radiation, um, you know, would you miss, if you're, if you're a center that gives just chemo, would you miss uh, parametrial, would you miss giving radiation to patients if you didn't give parametrial, if you didn't do a parametrectomy or a radical hysterectomy? So were there other factors that these patients would have gotten radiation anyway, and by missing microscopic disease in the parametrium, it would have been covered with the radiation? Right. So now um, you gather this information and this data out of the, uh, what is called the Nectar Registry, um, and you uh, subtitled the, the study a Nectar study. I uh, was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, what is the Nectar Registry, how many patients are in that registry, and then what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, for this study? So the, the Nectar Registry is a tumor registry that we started about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, Nectar stands for the NE and Nectar stands for neuroendocrine, the C, cervical, TU, tumor, R registry. So the neuroendocrine cervical tumor registry, Nectar. Uh, and this is a, a international database uh, that is run by Gloria Salvo, who is the first author on this paper. Uh, and really the impetus behind this paper, this paper was essentially her idea, but I think she was a little too shy to come on the podcast. <laughs> uh, and Naomi Gonzalez, who's our administrator for the, the, the registry. And, and essentially any patient from a English or Spanish speaking country uh, from anywhere in the world can register for this registry. We have a website, uh, www.necervix.com where patients find us. Uh, and once they register consent, then they give us the ability to essentially retrieve their medical records from wherever they're getting treated. Uh, and, uh, and then we enter them into the registry. The registry is, uh, has over 400 and I think last count was 35 patients, um, which is, uh, if you look at uh, recent publications from SEER or the National Cancer Database, you know, our, our registry is larger than, than, than both of those for these types of patients. Uh, and we feel that the uh, data in, these, in, in this registry is probably a little more uh, uh, highly maintained uh, and probably a little more accurate uh, and certainly has more detail than those other uh, kind of national databases. So this study uh, drew from those patients in the Nectar Registry. Uh, we, looked, we wanted to look at patients who had uh, early stage disease. Uh, they can have tumors that were less than four centimeters and limited to the cervix. They couldn't have any clinical or radiologic evidence of parametrial involvements, nodal involvement, or metastatic disease. Um, they could have pure or mixed high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma, but they had to have at least a component of high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma. And they um, had to have undergone a rad hiss with lymph nodes. Um, and the lymph nodes could be full or sentinel nodes. So that was the group that we included. Any patients who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy or radiation were excluded. So these were patients who had upfront radical hysterectomy, had clinically clinical stage 1B2 or smaller disease, both by exam and by radiology. 
Great. And congratulations again, uh, almost uh, 500 patients of neuroendocrine cervical cancer. It's amazing uh, registry. Um, now, getting into some of the details of the um, inclusion and in, uh, in, uh, the methodology, um, you know, certainly we noted that there were patients that were included from the all the way from the 1990s to uh, very recently 2020, uh, with 90% of the patients operated uh, between 2003 and 2020. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, that obviously there have been uh, changes in terms of the standard adjuvant and treatment protocols or chemotherapies across the time period of the study. Um, how do you think these impacted on the survival outcomes identified in the study? Yeah, that's certainly a limitation of the study uh, because patients come from kind of all over the world um, and because there's no definitive standard treatment for these patients. They, there's been a lot of different uh, surgeries performed, uh, whether or not radiation was given, type of radiation, whether or not chemo was given, type of chemo. Um, and so certainly that's going to be a limitation of the study um, and, and probably did impact survival. Uh, we tried to obviously control for a lot of those things in the study, but there may be confounders that we're just not uh, able to control for. Yeah. And, and as a follow-up question to that, um, you know, sort of the same thing along the time frame of, uh, of the study, um, obviously there's been uh, considerable progress on, on the use of, uh, you know, pathology uh, evaluations, imaging modalities to, to evaluate patients with uh, cervical cancer. And, um, you know, question is, as the, the, even the FIGO staging has changed over time, how does this uh, impact uh, the classification and evaluation of, of these patients, analysis, and the outcomes? So the, the, patients, the patients who were included in the study uh, had to have basically clinical stage one disease with tumors less than four centimeters limited to the cervix and negative imaging. Um, so if a patient had positive microscopic nodes after surgery, those patients were not excluded as long as they underwent the radical hysterectomy. Um, if they had uh, positive nodes by imaging before, they were excluded. Um, and, you know, in this study, there were, we included 100 patients, um, and 23 of them actually, um, 23 of them did not have cervix-limited disease. So 23 of them did have disease in the parametrium or in the lymph nodes, mm -hmm. uh, but those were, were not detected by exam, nor were they detected by imaging. Um, as you mentioned before, you know, 90% of these patients were treated after 2003, but, but certainly we've made a lot of strides in imaging uh, in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. So some of the patients who were in kind of the pre-PET era, you know, maybe would have been excluded had they had uh, better imaging, you know, in the late 90s or early 2000s. But, you know, we went with basically the group of patients who had negative imaging at the time they were being treated. Okay. And um, one of the things I was looking uh, in, into the, the details of the manuscript and I uh, was wondering, were there any patients who underwent uh, minimally invasive radical hysterectomy? And do you, do you have a sense as to whether this... Um, might have impacted the, the outcomes, um, you know, similar results to the LAC trial in neuroendocrine cervix. Do you, well, you have an interest in the LAC trial? <laughs> I've, I've, ne I've never heard you talk about the LAC trial. 
it's, so, it's sort of like it's sort of like people who went to Harvard. They're able to like work that into any conversation that they uh, <laughs> that they're having. <laughs> um, so we actually didn't report in the paper, but um, we did we did look at um, patients who went uh, minimally invasive uh, who had minimally invasive surgery, uh, and in this study again, 100 patients. Uh, 46 of them uh, had open surgery, uh, 40 had minimally invasive surgery. Uh, we had some patients who had unknown. Uh, and actually, we, we asked our statistician to look and see if there is a difference. And, you know, again, small numbers, but and so there was not a statistically significant difference, but there does seem to be a trend toward a trend favoring the open surgery, even for these, these patients with this rare neuroendocrine tumor. Um, I think if, uh, you know, we had a bigger sample size, it wouldn't take a much bigger sample size to see that become statistically significant. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see when um, when you accrue more patients to um, to look at that question again. Yeah. So one of the other questions was, uh, you know, certainly you mentioned that patients were eligible regardless of the adjuvant treatment, uh, radiotherapy with chemo, radiotherapy uh, alone, chemotherapy alone. Um, different modalities that could potentially have a different impact on oncologic outcomes. So the question is, um, you know, certainly is this a selection bias? How does this um, uh, translate into the analysis of the of the results? So yeah, so certainly that that's as we talked about earlier. You know, the, the different because it's an international um, registry where uh, patients are treated from all over the world over a a, a a significant a large period of time um, controlling for what they got after surgery. So they all got surgery to begin with. So that's that's common. But what they got after surgery, uh, you know, differed. Um, we tried to control for that. And if you if you look at the patients who had positive parametrial disease, 80% of them got radiation after surgery uh, in some form. Uh, and the patients who had parametrial negative disease, 71% of them got radiation in some form. Uh, with or without chemotherapy afterwards. So, you know, the two groups are, you know, somewhat balanced in in what they got um, after surgery. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's important to highlight exactly what, what you said and for our audience to remember that, you know, certainly in this patient population, regardless of whether you have positive parametrium or negative parametrium, high likelihood of uh, having uh, radiation treatment. Um, so now getting on to the main findings of the study, uh, the punchline. Uh, what was the highlight of uh, of the study, uh, and if you could outline that for our audience? So, you know, for me, there are are three or four things. Um, there's obviously the primary endpoint of of what's the risk of parametrial involvement, and and how often would have those patients gotten radiation, uh, even if you hadn't done a parametrectomy. Uh, and we're using other factors to determine radiation. Again, at our center, we give radiation to everyone, but certainly there are other centers that might use risk factors for radiation. Uh, and so for that primary outcome, 10% of patients had parametrial involvement. Uh, and all of these patients, so if you're a center that says, well, I'm gonna use either parametrial involvement or lymph node involvement or sedless criteria to determine who's gonna get radiation afterwards, all 10 of these patients would have had some other risk factor that you would have given them radiation anyway. Mm -hmm. So eight of those, eight of the ten patients had had pair, had positive lymph nodes, so they would have gotten radiation, and the other two patients had uh, met sedless criteria, so they would have also gotten uh, radiation. So you know the idea is is that if you're using the parametrectomy as your decision maker to give radiation, 
there are going to be other things that are going to lead you to giving radiation, uh, even if you do a simple hysterectomy for these patients. You know, the, the paper also had some other interesting secondary findings, which I think are uh, important when we're thinking about patients and, and certainly counseling patients. Um, you know, first is that, you know, this is a highly selected group. So patients had to have essentially radiologic negative disease to the, to the lymph nodes. But even then, 21% of them had pathologically positive lymph nodes. So high rate of, of lymph node metastases. Um, about 50% of patients had mixed tumors. So neuroendocrine mixed with either adeno or squamous tumors and 50% had pure tumors. Um, and then a, a good numbers to know when you're counseling patients is that the patients with these stage one tumors who had radical hysterectomy, who were kind of destined to recur, 80% recurred within the first two years and 86% recurred within the first three years. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can get a patient to three years, there's a, a very low likelihood that they're going to recur. Yeah, that's uh, really great um, information there to uh, discuss with our, with our patients. Um, so we're, we're going to uh, you know, certainly go back perhaps to a few of those points during the, the, the discussion. Um, but one of the things that came up in, uh, in discussion of this uh, manuscript recently was, um, are you aware as to the what type of parametrial involvement and pathology there's been talk about, you know, direct microscopic spread, positive parametrial nodes, or lymphovascular space invasion in the parametrium? Um, you know, and frankly, does any of those, that matter in terms of uh, calling a parametrium positive? Uh, yeah, so well, in, in this pay, in our group, um, uh, 30% had direct microscopic extension, 40% it was disease in the parametrial node, and then 30% another 30% had disease seen in lymphatic channels in the parametrium. Um, I think the first two uh, direct extension and parametrial nodes are kind of indisputable evidence that there's parametrial involvement. Uh, I think that some might argue what the kind of uh, significance of tumor in the lymphatic channels in the parametrium is. Does that constitute true, true parametrial involvement? Uh, we included, we, we considered it true parametrial involvement because it was you know, evidence of microscopic tumor in the parametrium. Yeah, and I think that by definition, any of those will be considered a positive parametrium. Um, now, I, I believe that there were 19 patients with no uh, residual disease in the final specimen. Um, and wondering if, uh, first, how many of those had uh, uh, negative lymph nodes? And were there any recurrences identified in these patients with negative lymph nodes? So in other words, no residual disease no parametrial involvement, obviously, and no uh, lymph node involvement. What's the recurrence in those patients? So in, in these 19 patients, um, 18 of them had lymph nodes removed, and all 18 of them had negative nodes. Uh, the last one, the last patient didn't have any nodes, nodes assessed. Um, so of these 19 patients, two of them recurred. Uh, both of them had negative nodes. Uh, and one of the patients had gotten chemotherapy only after surgery, and one of them had gotten no adjuvant therapy after surgery. Um, but certainly this group of, of no residual disease uh, seems to be a, a lower risk group. Uh, you know, two out of 19 recurrences, uh, you know, is about 20, is about what, 10%, mm -hmm. um, which is much lower than the 50% that we saw for the entire group and 
and 50% is about what's reported in the literature from other uh, larger uh, international studies. Yeah, so then as a follow-up question to that, you know, what would you say to a young patient that uh, actually fits that profile, that had no residual disease, completely negative uh, lymph nodes, and uh, she asked, you know, can I avoid the adjuvant radiation therapy? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question and something that we're actually beginning to struggle with a little bit, too. You know, as, as we talked about earlier, uh, we're kind of massively invasive in treating these patients. You know, they get surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. That's our standard. Uh, but we're starting to think about is that is that over-treating a group of patients? Uh, can these patients with uh, no residual disease uh, and negative nodes uh, be treated with just chemotherapy? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I hesitate to, to say this because I, you know, I know people listening to, to these, these podcasts, um, you know, uh, may sometimes change their, their care. Uh, but, you know, I'm beginning to think that potentially for some of these patients with 1A1 and 1A2 tumors with with no residual disease on their on their radical hysterectomy specimen, or potentially could be treated with chemotherapy alone after surgery, and um, omit the omit the um, omit the radiation. But but just to be clear, um, you know that's not our standard yet. Yeah, no, and I think it's also important to highlight that you know even in a registry where you have almost 500 patients, uh, this particular subgroup of patients. It's exceedingly rare, so obviously not enough right. numbers to um, to determine what's the right strategy in those uh, in those patients. So my next question is, uh, you know, comparing the two groups, patients that had parametrial involvement versus no parametrial involvement. Um, question that was raised was, uh, you know, was there a, a difference in terms of the type of radical hysterectomy uh, between those two groups and? Uh, think I might know what the answer might be, but I just wanted to hear from you. Yeah, you know, again, just the nature of our registry doesn't really allow us to, to, to assess that. Um, you know, a large number of patients had their surgeries done at MD Anderson, uh, but the majority of patients had their surgeries done outside of MD Anderson who are part of this registry. Uh, and, you know, everyone describes essentially a type two or type three radical hysterectomy uh, but really knowing the details of exactly what kind of radical hysterectomy is done is that was done is, is outside of our, our ability within this registry. Yeah, that's right. And then most likely, obviously, limited to what the registry uh, information provides, um, which then brings me to uh, the point of um, sentinel lymph nodes. And, uh, and obviously, sentinel lymph nodes uh, becoming increasingly more uh, popular in the setting of early-stage cervical cancer Sentinel uh, trial still ongoing. Um, now, in this particular uh, population, I think that there were just a few patients who had sentinel lymph node mapping and, and pelvic lymphadenectomy, um, and was wondering if you had any thoughts regarding the use of intraoperative sentinel lymph node evaluation to modify the type of radicality uh, performed at the time of the hysterectomy. Yeah, so that that's an, an interesting question. Um, and if, if you look at look, if you look at the way we report, we say that eighty percent of the patients who had a positive parametrial node, oh, I'm sorry, who had positive parametrium, had positive nodes. 
and only 14% of the patients who had negative parametrium had positive notes. Okay. But if you look at it, if you flip those kind of numbers around, you can say that 12 of the 20 patients or 60% who had positive nodes had negative parametrium and eight patients or 20% of those 20 patients who had positive nodes um, had positive parametrium. And so, you know, if what you're asking is if you do a central node and the node is negative, um, what is the risk of parametrial spread? And that risk is two out of 74. So about 3% of patients were node negative with positive parametrium. Um, and again, you know, that, that group of patients, that those two patients who were node negative, but had positive parametrium had other high risk factors, um, that would have led to radiation, but you would, but if you're saying, can you do a central node, do a frozen section, if it's negative, avoid the parametrium and then not give radiation. Um, you probably still would have gotten, you probably still would have radiated those two patients for cervix factors as opposed to, to nodal factors. Yeah. So then um, this is sort of like the, the, the other uh, end of the spectrum with regards to the um, adjuvant treatment. So one of the things is that uh, I think it was over 95, uh, I think approximately 95% of patients were recommended, recommended adjuvant therapy. Um, do you think these patients would be appropriately treated with just radiation and concurrent uh, cisplatinum plus or minus additional chemotherapy with no surgery? Um, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, there have been, you know, there have been a, uh, a few papers that have shown that actually for early stage disease, um, radiation may actually be better than surgery. Uh, other papers have shown that, that they're essentially equivalent, um, you know, primary, essentially chemo radiation uh, versus surgery and adjuvant therapy. Uh, but you know what I would what I would say is that you know I would favor the surgery first approach uh, because if the outcomes are essentially equivalent, certainly the morbidity of of uh, you know full dose external beam radiation with with brachytherapy, particularly on sexual functioning, um, is going to be higher than than radical hysterectomy radical hysterectomy plus um, plus uh, external beam radiation, and so. Um, you know, I would still favor the, the surgery plus adjuvant therapy versus primary chemo radiation for these patients. Yeah, and particularly for uh, young patients as well. But, you know, obviously the, many of them are end up getting radiation and chemotherapy anyway. So w one thing that I didn't see in the study, and I was wondering if you can um, just elaborate on that, um, what was the rate of perioperative complications in, in these patients? And I don't know if you have that in your registry. Yeah, that's something that's that we don't really have in the registry because it's 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 hard to it's hard to uh, garner uh, perioperative complications and intraoperative complications retrospectively, even in a single institution study, uh, and certainly in a study like this where a lot of our data are coming from outside uh, institutions and outside documentation. It, it's difficult for us to to ascertain that 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 type of uh, data. Okay. So one of the questions that, that I know um, will come up as a follow-up to, to this study is, well, uh, if we're not doing radical hysterectomies anymore, and you're certainly raising the possibility of potentially doing a simple hysterectomy, given, number one, the low rate of parametrial involvement, and number two, 
the fact that regardless of what the parametrium shows, there's going to be a high rate of adjuvant treatment anyway in, in these high-grade neuroendocrine cervix. So, of course, the question will come up, well, now that you, we're performing just a simple hysterectomy, uh, can that be done by laparoscopy or robotics? Yeah, I, I, so obviously we, we don't know, and, um, and it's going to be hard to ever know for certain. Uh, but I would personally uh, not offer minimally invasive surgery to these patients. Um, you know, again, I, I, we, we don't want to rehash the LAC study, but, but one of the, at least my theory as to why minimally invasive surgery uh, has a worse prognosis in squamous and adenocarcinomas uh, you know, from the LAC study and obviously all the other studies that have followed um, has something to do with, uh, again, manipulation of, of the tumor, um, disruption of the tumor, then, you know, a colpotomy incision that introduces tumor into the peritoneal cavity, and then kind of tumor, you know, um, tumor spread through aerosolization and through the pneumo, pneumoperitoneum. Again, just to be clear, this is my personal kind of, you know, hypothesis as to why minimally invasive surgery is worse. Um, but using that same hypothesis, on a disease that is much, much more aggressive, much, much more virulent, much, much more likely to spread intraperitoneally just to begin with, to introduce those same risk factors into these patients with neuroendocrine tumors, I think doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, I would strongly recommend that we continue to do uh, these surgeries open for these patients. Great. So then, uh, Michael, one uh, one last question, obviously, I, and I often ask uh, this of uh, the speakers in the podcast. Um, Based on the results of this study, you know, certainly now you are uh, showing a, a low rate of parametrial involvement. You're showing that many of these patients will undergo adjuvant treatment regardless of parametrial involvement. You're suggesting that perhaps a simple hysterectomy may be completely suitable for, for these patients. Uh, in your practice, how, are you ready to make that change? Are you suggesting that we all make that change um, based on this information, how will you um, change your practice or how will the results of this impact your practice or how you counsel patients? So so, that, so the, the kind of short answer is, is no. Uh, we're, we're not at this point changing anything. Um, we're still recommending um, radical uh, hysterectomy. Um, and, you know, a study like this with these conclusions um, is a bit of a conundrum when you're doing rare, rare tumor research anyway. You know, uh, small numbers, almost always going to be retrospective. You know, how do you essentially shift an entire paradigm based on, you know, kind of 10 patients who had positive parametrium? Um, and so, you know, to us, it makes sense to, to abandon the radical hysterectomy for a simple hysterectomy, but I, I just it'd be hard to kind of defend to a patient, your, your, your first patient who's going to recur, who probably re recurred anyway, who had a radical hysterectomy. Um, it's going to be hard to defend to the patient, but even more importantly, to defend to your own yourself as you kind of lie in bed at night, wondering if you did a patient a disservice by doing uh, less, less radical surgery. Um, you know, um, and, and so you know, we're going to continue to do radical hysterectomy for these patients at the time. Um, you know, hopefully as this registry continues to swell and we get, you know, as you mentioned, almost 500 patients, you know, 700 patients, 1,000 patients, as we get bigger numbers and we're able to show kind of more definitively 
that maybe radical surgery is is unnecessary. Uh, that might be what it takes. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, what we talked about earlier is can we abandon radiation for patients with 1A1 and 1A2 tumors with no residual disease on radical hysterectomy? You know, again, that's something that we're also contemplating, uh, but uh, you know, hard decisions to make with, with small retrospective studies. Yeah, and, and uh, just as a follow-up question to that, and uh, promise this is the last question. Uh, obviously, there's there's always going to be the enthusiasts who suggest, well, why don't we just do a prospective uh, study? Uh, what would you say to that? I, I would love it. Uh, it would probably take the entire world. Uh, it would take the entire world to participate. It would probably take 20 years to do it. Uh, you know, based on on these small numbers of this of this disease, and unfortunately. Uh, I don't think we have neither the time nor the money to, to do it, unfortunately. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, thank you and uh, Dr. Gloria Salvo and the rest of the team for really uh, providing this um, additional information to, to the literature. We really feel this is an important study, and that's uh, the, why we are highlighting it as the, as the lead article. Uh, once again, congratulations on uh, the Nectar Registry and we encourage uh, anyone who is interested in the um, Nectar Registry to contact uh, Michael Fromowitz uh, and, uh, and look into the details of this as we certainly feel there's a tremendous value. Uh, we're extremely proud of what you're doing here at MD Anderson, and um, I want to thank you again. Thanks, Pedro. I just want to, if it's okay, I just want to take you know, one quick second just to, uh, to announce by name our team. Uh, you know, Gloria Salvo, who is the first author on this paper and uh, who uh, runs the clinical uh, registry. Um, you know, this this study was really her idea, and uh, she did, you know, the lion's share of work. Um, Preetha Ramalingan is our pathologist who's part of our group. Alejandra Flores is in our rare tumor group. Anuja Jingren, the radiation oncologist who is uh, interested in rare tumors and particularly neuroendocrine. Naomi Gonzalez, who I mentioned, is the administrative lead for the Nectar Registry, and then Gary Chisholm, who's our statistician. So I want to thank the entire team for, for their work on this paper. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Pedro.